I think that's most people are in the room, so we'll begin. Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for joining today's seminar. We have been doing these weekly seminars on Zoom, talking about the various challenges facing journalism right now. The biggest challenge of all is staying alive, um, and I don't say that lightly at all. And I'm I'm beyond moved that we we have Matthew Caruana Galizia talking to us today. His mother, Daphne Caruana Galizia, was killed in a car bomb in 2017. She was a journalist who was assassinated inside the European Union for her, directly as a consequence of her work. Sadly, she's not the only one. We have Jan Kusiak in Slovakia and Lyra McKee in the United Kingdom, all murdered while carrying out their work as journalists. Paul, Matthew and his brothers, Paul and Andrew, have have done incredible work in seeking justice to see in seeking justice for her murder um, ensuring that her reporting on corruption continues and ensuring the people she was writing about are brought to account it's been an extraordinary journey for three young men who are also journalists accomplished writers in their own right um, so we're going to hear from matthew today and we'll stick to the usual format of half a half an hour or so of talks and i'll bring questions Everything is on the record. Um, please type in questions into the chat box and I'll put them to Matthew at the end. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for joining. I know you're, I know it's kind of an incredibly intense time for you. Um, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks, Mira, Louise, and everyone at the Reuters Institute for, for organizing. Um, I mean, I guess giving for, for me and for everyone in my family, giving us the opportunity to talk about what we're doing is important because from day one, we felt a huge obligation, um, not, just, not just to our mother personally, but also to the public in general, um, to, to sort of stand up for everyone else and show others what we think should be done if they ever find themselves in the same situation. Um, so the fact that, that we get to, get to talk about what we've been doing is, I, I guess, an extension of one of our core missions, which is to lead by example, um, to put it most simply, um, to show others what to do when they're in the same situation. Of, of course, it, it begins um, by, holding by holding power to account. We are in, in the situation with my mother dead because my mother was holding power to account. And part of the, or rather, the process of seeking justice is an extension of my mother's work. So even though I hate to say this, um, to what my my mother's murder was one of the many things that was was done to us in the whole journey towards um, towards accountability, and of course that that journey continues. It it was important that we didn't let the murder itself stop. So around um, I th I think it was last year um, or two years ago, I, I gave a talk to the International Journalism Festival in Perugia 
about what we had been doing over the past year. And I, I listed a number, a, a number of things that, a number of lessons that we had learned. They were around like 13 lessons, I think. Since then, a lot has changed. Um, chief among which is that someone has been charged with commissioning the murder. And this is one of the people whom we suspected all along. Now, many of those lessons still apply, but I also want to give an update and include all of the other things that we've learned since then. And also how we've institutionalized what we're doing in the Daphne Caruana Galizia Foundation, which, which I now run as, as the director. It provides a framework, a formal framework for what we're doing. So going back to the very beginning, um, I, I spoke about one of the things that, one of the obligations that we felt from the outset. And when I mean the first day, I really mean the very first day, the day of the murder itself. In, in that week, we, we did a lot of research or, or did a lot of reading um, on, on similar cases. Now, of course, I was aware of, the, of Anna Politkovskaya's work and of Boris Nemtsov's work. And I was aware that the investigations into their murders had failed. And... I and, and everyone else in my family felt strongly that the circumstances were similar. The murders occurred um, in a context of extreme corruption and rule of law failures. So we, we did a lot of research into how the investigations into the murders of Anna Politkovskaya and Boris Nemtsov collapsed. This also helped set our expectations for the investigation into the murder in Malta. Our, our expectation was immediately that it didn't matter whatever the state promised, whatever politicians promised, the prime minister went on TV and made a promise to leave no stone unturned in the investigation. We knew that this, this was meaningless. Um, the, the lessons we had learned from similar murders told us this, that the, the promises themselves mean nothing. And we reacted accordingly whenever these promises were made. It, the, the murder of Anna Politkovskaya, for example, also set our expectations in, in the long term. When you look at how that investigation played out, um, a number a number of people were, were charged, but if I remember correctly, all of them were acquitted. The investigation seems to have collapsed. Um, and as one, um, as one columnist wrote, Julia Joffe, at most some sad sap, the supposed trigger puller, will be hauled in front of a judge, the scapegoat for someone far more powerful. More likely, the case will founder for years amid promises that everyone is working hard and no one will be brought to justice at all. This was our, our expectation from the beginning. It prepared us for the arrest of the, of the hitmen, just 
two months after the murder itself and the eventual campaign of the government to draw attention away from the murder by saying, look, justice has been done. Um, the hitmen have been arrested. These are the people who are responsible for the murder. It prepared us for the government's rejection of international offers of support in the murder of investigation. Um, it prepared us for the winding down of the murder investigation or what seemed like from the outside to be the winding down of the investigation. And again, it prepared us to react accordingly. I really believe that the investigation would have continued to wind down and we would have never seen the arrest of Jürgen Fenech, who is now charged with commissioning my mother's murder, had it not been for the fact that so many people were just all banging on the same door, door to justice. And of course, getting all of those people to work together to do this was a process that, that taught us a lot. And again, these are the, some of the things that I'd like to go over. So we, we really learned a lot from our peers in other countries. This, this I guess, was the, was the first step to learn from others. Um, after the murders of Anna Politkovskaya and Boris Nemtsov, their families, who are extremely brave, um, pushed for and got the appointment of rapporteurs from the Council of Europe. And these rapporteurs were empowered, they had the backing of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe and were dedicated to investigating the circumstances surrounding the death of, of Boris Nemtsov and Anna Politkovskaya. So my family found out how this was done and immediately set about doing the same thing. Of course, it, it came at great personal cost. I had to leave my job. My, my brothers also had to leave their jobs so that we could, we could focus full time for two months on doing this. But I think it was one of the single most important things we did. That process led to the appointment of Peter Romzicht, who is the Council of Europe's rapporteur into the assassination of my mother. And he's, um, he still holds that position. He received an extension. His work has been extremely important because um, the, the murder of my mother happened in the context of a democratic collapse in Malta. Um, our government governing party was severely compromised. Our opposition party was severely compromised. There was almost no pressure coming from inside the country itself. So we needed outside pressure. The, the second thing we did that I, I, I have since changed, I mean, I wasn't a strong believer before my mother's murder in security training, but since then, of course, I've changed my mind. So the second thing that we did was to get security training um, from people who have experience working in, in dangerous contexts, even people working in war zones. We got security training from former members of the British Armed Forces, 
and while that may or may not have saved our lives in some situations it's still a useful coping mechanism because it gets you to think rationally about security threats and it makes you feel as though you can do something about them so the these kinds of coping mechanisms are really important if you're doing this kind of work <clears throat> the sorry the the sort of third thing that we we really sort of agreed between us um to do was to keep our eyes on the ball so to keep away from discussions about um Malta status as a tax haven, for example, this is something that's that's often raised, but we didn't want to muddy the waters um, on the discussion about corruption in Malta and my mother's murder with discussions about things that are perhaps a matter of ideology. We wanted to make it clear that this has nothing to do um, with Malta status as a tax haven or as an offshore jurisdiction or anything like that. Corruption is wrong wherever it happens, full stop. The, the murder of an, of an investigative journalist should always be investigated properly, and the corruption surrounding that murder should be investigated, and they should, there should also be prosecutions for that. So it was very important for us not, not to muddy the waters at all. Um, the the fourth thing that I would say was really important to us was to stick together as a family because it's really, it's impossible to do this work alone as a single individual and to engage as many extended family members and community members as, as possible. There are, there are many examples from history of, of, family mem of families that have fought together against tyranny and corruption and injustice but none of them ever work alone they depend on the support of a community or they 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 work as part of a community so my brothers and i and my father and i are in daily communication um regarding our fight but we're also in daily communication with activists with members of press freedom organizations um with journalists in malta and outside malta this is really important to us we wouldn't have managed to do anything at all without without working in this way this building of a large support network is really really key um when you when again when when you look at um people who have succeeded in holding power to account and we're we're not there yet in our case you'll see that they've always worked as part of a large community and this to me personally even means doing things as basic as communicating with your friends frequently and meaningfully even friends who who, ha who don't publicly support your fight because public support is one thing and, and private support is another. So even people who don't sort of um, step up publicly to, to support us, of course, 
I ask them how ask them how they are and I show an interest in their lives. Um, even those who aren't journalists or who aren't activists, it's really important to us, to me, um, to have friends in all kinds of fields and to engage with them. Um, the, because the risk is that if you if you spend all of your time only engaging with activists or only engaging with journalists, um, you lose other kinds of friendships and you create a kind of um, you you create a sort of you create allies but risk create risk losing meaningful friendships. Um, it also I mean the the sort of concept of a bubble is is typically negative or or is portrayed as being something negative. But um, in in my particular case, it has actually been something positive. It's important to be sort of inside a bubble of positivity. Um, I can't constantly expose myself to negative or contradictory views because um, it would be impossible to cope otherwise. Sometimes you really do need the pos positivity of a bubble. Um, and it, I want to sort of make a positive argument for that. Um, the, the sixth thing that um, we've worked hard to do is to, to do what we call setting fires that need to be put out. So we, we try to do things that force an internal discussion within institutions or within organizations that are targeting us. Um, this is really part of our theory of change. So we've put a lot of effort into appealing for help from political bodies that are typically considered to be useless, like the UN Human Rights Council, for example. They can't take any executive action whatsoever, and they can't sanction. But of course, governments do care about their standing in international fora. And the important thing here is that they're forced to respond to anything that concerns them at a supranational level. And to respond, there has to be a discussion within the diplomatic service of a government, within the foreign ministry, within the office of the head of government. And when this happens, it frustrates officials and it eats up time and takes them away from work that would otherwise be malicious. So it takes them away from, for example, malicious campaign work. And of course, internally within public institutions, it might give backing to people who might exist within those institutions who, um, who want to support you, but are otherwise isolated. So for us, this was really important. Sometimes we'd recognize that there might be a single investigator within a regulatory authority or a single person within the diplomatic service who would want to support you internally, but wouldn't have the backing to do so. So we would always aim to give them that backing. Of course, we, 
would have been unable to do this without working actively with press freedom NGOs, with human rights NGOs, with anti-corruption NGOs. They have a lot of resources, which are rather, they have a lot of resources in comparison to a single family like mine. And they really helped us um, plan advocacy, um, succeed with advocacy goals, um, identify the targets for our for our advocacy um, help us rationalize what we wanted to do this was really important but for us it was completely new um, i come from a from a technical so i'm a computer programmer with a, a background in journalism most of my work has been for um for media organizations I had never worked with press freedom NGOs before. I had never worked with um, with human rights NGOs or with anti-corruption NGOs ever before. Um, my focus was purely on my organization's journalistic work. So for me, this was completely new. Um, it the, there was a learning curve, but I would from this what i get out of this experience is that i would really encourage people who are in a position where they're holding power to account might feel isolated might feel like um their work is not being respected or is not being followed up on by the state um to work more closely with with press freedom and anti-corruption ngos there's really great value in doing this. We, we had to highlight this at the beginning because there was, there was a gap in the understanding at an institutional level. Um, my, the, the case of my mother's murder and what happened in Malta was seen as, a, as, a, as solely a press freedom issue. But we had to make it clear very early on that it's, it's not purely that. Um, that there was high level corruption that preceded the murder, that my mother was investigating this high level corruption and those investigations led directly to her murder. So we had to make this really clear straight away that Jan Kusiak and my mother were not murdered because people couldn't tolerate their opinions, but because Slovakia and Malta were not functioning as they should be functioning. And thinking in this way opened up a lot of possibilities for us. It opened up the possibility of using international mechanisms and authorities focusing on corruption, of working with NGOs that are focused on corruption and money laundering and organized crime. This is how we, we came to focus some advocacy on the Council of Europe, for example, and its institutions like Greco and Moneyval. We also had to make the argument to, I mean, to the public that acts must follow facts, that a democracy isn't functioning properly if journalists are consistently 
publishing inv investigation, the results of investigations on organized crime and high-level corruption, and absolutely nothing happens, which is the case in Malta. If there are no repercussions for the criminality that you expose, then, then like my mother, you're in trouble because it means that you're alone, like my mother was. You're functioning as the investigator of last resort. So the state isn't investigating, you're filling that gap. But at the same time, you're completely isolated and exposed. Because if the perpetrators of that corruption that you're exposing enjoy impunity for it, then in all probability, they're also going to enjoy impunity for when they perpetrate violence against you. So you, I mean, states um, have the opportunity to recognize when journalists are in danger. And that recognition should come at the point when there are no, when it can be seen that there are no repercussions for their work. I mean, no positive repercussions. One of the, one of the things that we, we did to, to show that the work of journalists was having no repercussions was to show a documentary trail of, of malfeasance and misfeasance. So while many people think that um, reporters are, are toothless, for example, UN reporters, OSCE reporters, it's true, but this is not their purpose. It's not their purpose to have teeth. It's their purpose to use their authority to demand written explanations from states. So letters sent by the OSCEs and the UN special rapporteurs on extrajudicial killings, for example, trigger responses. Those responses expose malfeasance and misfeasance. In my mother's case, they expose the Malta government's hatred of my mother. So in the, the state's official response to the OSCE, they called my mother a hate blogger. And these were words that were put down in an official state level response. It shows the state's contempt for my mother's work. And this is important when considering the, the, the context of her assassination. We do this at the national level too, um, not just at the supranational level. We frequently request and get written responses so that the failures of the state are documented. The other thing that we do, and in saying this, I have to wonder, I, I have to say that um, as a European, I am, a position, I am in, a, in a position of privilege because, of course, people in other, in other countries where many of these institutions um, don't exist simply don't have this opportunity. So um, my family is as litigious as possible um, because we consider this pressure necessary. But... Um, of course, this isn't possible in all situations. Um, in many countries, such as Saudi Arabia, it's, it's simply impossible to do this because of, um, 
of threats of violence from the state against um, against family members who might try to do this. Uh, so in our case, it is possible to to always be on the offensive um, because we're we're in a different context um, or relatively the, a, a relatively different context. We we say that powerful people like the ones who commissioned my mother's murder simply don't respect weakness. So from the beginning, we wanted to make it clear that we we would never show any sign of weakness. We would never um, give in for any to any demand from the government to shut up about about what happened. So we we set out right from the beginning to use as many legal mechanisms as possible to fight for justice. And at the same time, I think this is, again, this is really good advice for everyone. We always have to be aware of campaigns that are designed to diminish our reputation. This is, this is something that's done to every single person who's in the same position. They'll try to discredit you in advance and portray you as unreliable before to discredit you in advance of your next action. So when you think that this is being done, you have to present facts even more forcefully than you did before in order to implicitly discredit the people who would be conducting offensive campaigns against you. This is something that we see being done over and over again. Um, in my case, it was really blatant. There was a concerted campaign by government officials to actually blame me for my mother's murder. Um, either by saying that it was my fault that my mother was murdered because I parked her car outside the house, or by saying that I had a role in my mother's murder, that I actually planned um, or conspired with the hitmen for my mother to be, to be murdered because I wanted the government to collapse so that I could then take control of the country. This is, this is literally how outrageous the, the campaign was. Um, they tried to make it seem as though our campaign for justice um, was part of a campaign to actually take control of the country itself. Um, and one of the people who in fact said this was Malta's current prime minister, um, Robert Abela. Um, it's, to us, it's just astonishing that even after all that has come out um, of the murder investigation, government officials still continue to do this and haven't apologized for doing that. But we, again, we try to focus on, on the long term. So my day-to-day -day work is now running the Daphne Caruana Galizia Foundation, which provides a framework for all of the things that we're doing and will hopefully provide a framework to others who might be to might be in the same situation we're very small just three people 
and we have a huge amount of work to do. Um, we were focused on, on fighting for justice in my mother's case, but we also have a parallel focus, which is structural change in Malta and, else, and globally. Um, in Malta, our efforts towards structural change are focused on improving investigative journalism in the country by creating platforms for collaborative journalism and structural changes in other areas like legal areas by creating a public interest litigation network. So we've set really massive goals for ourselves um, that sometimes feel almost unachievable. Um, but even if we don't achieve some of them, what I, what I hope I've shown in, in what I've said today is that the process is important. So even if you don't achieve what you've set out to do, the whole process of bringing out the truth of fighting for accountability, even if you don't ultimately get there, is really, really important. So my mother, of course, I don't think she, she ever imagined that what was done to her would be done to her. Um, and it's important that we recognize that even if her life was cut short and the lives of many other journalists and activists like her across the world have been cut short, the process of what they did even if they didn't set out to achieve what they originally set out to achieve while they were alive, is extremely important because it, it teaches others. It, in, in my case, taught me. If my mother hadn't done what she did, I wouldn't be here speaking to you today in all probability. And I would not be running the foundation. I would have continued my work as a computer programmer for a media organization. You would have never even known my, known my name or never even heard of me. Um, so there's this enormous value in the process, even if you don't set out, even if you don't achieve what you originally set out to achieve. Matthew, thank you so much i mean you you can see what an extraordinary woman your mother was not just because of her work but because of the son she raised thank you um, Mira. <laughs> you know you're you, you've been all three of you have been kind of inspired inspiring an inspiration you know and yeah you know you've, you've kept a lot of journalists going through incredibly difficult times with your work so thank you so much for it and and for being so clear in um documenting the process and figuring out how, you know what makes people survive and what really is striking is is the role of solidarity is the solidarity with each other with your community with the international community and with other journalists um we have some questions if that's okay yes let's go ahead yeah um there's there's a few questions which um about the the support you've had from journalism in, in particular, if I start with that, uh, one from Inna Parede saying, how are the media outlets in Malta reporting? I know you have some investigative journalism 
sites that are picking up the work, but how do you feel generally that the journalistic community in Malta um, has picked this up? And then um, a question from Yalko in Finland about the importance of the international, the role of the international media, and do you feel that it's adequately on the kind of agenda internationally as well? You've gone mute. Let's start with the first one. So, I mean, when something like this happens, it's, it's traumatic, not just for the family, but for the entire country. So the whole country, I mean, all of Malta was in a state of shock following the murder. And I think that most journalists simply did not know what to do. So it, there was this, this sort of double blow. The first is that you're one down. So like, you know, in a football, football game, sort of one person from your team has been sent off with a red card, you're one man down. Already starting from that, my mother, um, my mother was eliminated and we're already on a weak standing from, from the get-go. Um, and coupled with that, there was the shock um, which journalists were under, which journalists were experiencing. Um, I mean, this isn't simply uh, my observation. Um, st demo scientific studies have been done into, um, into fertility rates in Malta and Ireland, comparing um, comparing birth rates follow before and after traumatic events. And you can actually see the result of the trauma um, in, in, in these statistics. So following the murder of my mother, um, more women were born um, than, sorry, more girls were born than boys. It was actually reflected in that way. And the same thing happened in Ireland following a similarly traumatic event. So it's as though the reaction is even biological on top of psychological. Um, so I would say that for the first year or so, most journalists simply did not know what to do. And this was of course reflected in the quality of the journalism. Um, it, it wasn't as good as it should have been, but I, I think to a certain extent, this is forgivable, um, considering the shock that, that everyone was under. Um, we're extremely, I mean, I am forever grateful that uh, a group of journalists forming the Daphne Project stepped in and filled this gap, because had it not been for that, we would not be where we are today in the, in the investigation. So this group of journalists, I mean, journalists that come in to a country that is foreign to them are often criticized for doing this. But in this case, if they had not done this, um, sort of parachuted in and, and done this investigative work, despite not knowing anything about the country in advance, um, we would have been left with these, with these two gaps. Um, the empty space left, left by my mother 
and the psychological trauma that journalists in the country were dealing with. So the Daphne project made up for that and did even more. And then the international coverage, kind of coverage in the international media, do you feel it's where it should be? Would you like it to have been different? Are you? I mean, the international coverage was incredible, but on, on top of the coverage, th there wasn't just the reporting, there was also the commitment to investigative journalism. So I think what happened following the murder is that many journalists who most of the time only did reporting shifted to investigative journalism. It had this, this really, um, it had this, this sort of mass effect on journalism where suddenly there was this big shift in European media organizations towards investigative journalism. And that really changed the coverage. Um, it, it made it much deeper and not superficial, which was really important. The absolutely right. I think I'm absolutely highlighting the level of corruption within the EU acted as kind of galvanizing. Um, another aspect that I know you've talked about, and I might have been, I think I might have interrupted you before you got there, was the legal aspects. One thing you've really done in your campaign is raise awareness of how the libel lawsuits against your mother weighed down on her while she was still alive and how they, how, um, how they still do in many cases. Um, has that situation improved much? And then the other question related to that very specifically is about the slap process when Nabila Shabir heard you speaking in Amsterdam about the slap process and the harassment. And do you have any updates on that? Because the goal at the time was to raise awareness on how to intimidate a journalist or news outlet into removing, removing critical coverage or self-censoring reports by repeatedly taking them to court in order to exhaust their time and resources. Yes, yeah, so we, what we did um, within, the, within the first year following the murder um, is highlight how my mother's case was one of the most eg egregious cases um, of abuse of... Uh, of civil procedure, of abuse of dem defamation laws. And we, can't, we, can't, we are still campaigning for changes to these laws to prevent this abuse. We're not campaigning for the abolition of, for, de for a, a complete prohibition on, on defamation lawsuits. Um, what we're campaigning for is for these sort of loopholes in the mechanisms to be closed to prevent abuse. So when my mother was murdered, there were 43 libel suits that were still pending against her. The majority of those have been filed against her in the final 10 months of her life. So you could see how the, how the libel suits were again part of the pressure that was ramping up against her. Um, the, the people she was investigating were filing libel suit after libel suit after libel suit. That wasn't working. They resorted to murder. It's, it's very clear when you, when you sort of plot on a graph when the libel suits were filed. So we, we used this to highlight at a European level um, how 
the European Union or why the European Union should take action to prevent slap lawsuits. And we're currently working with, I think it's 115 NGOs across Europe to propose changes to European law to prevent further abuse. How do you feel the process is going? I think it's going well, considering, I mean, how difficult it is to, to raise public interest for something like this and to convince bureaucrats that they should do something about this. <laughs> but, um, I mean, our position is, my, there's nothing we can do to bring my mother back to life. The least we can do is use her life and her death um, to, to force this, uh, these necessary legal and institutional changes. Thank you. I had a question from Elapan Kumaran, um, which I, I noticed as well, it's very striking when you said, you know, you don't want to show weakness that the people you're up against um, are looking for signs of weakness. So the response is to be, to be strong. I suppose, could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by this? Because it's a very interesting concept of what is weakness and what is strength here. You know, what do you mean by strength? Is it the kind of international solidarity you've shown or saying we're not going to go away? Is it determination or what? Or is it kind of purely, it's also as simple as saying show you've got powerful backers. What is it? What is no, it's, it's, it's definitely not being a bully at all. You, you never want to be that. Um, when fighting bullies, you shouldn't then become like them. Um, but what I mean is that there were, perhaps I can sort of explain by making it personal. There were, there were many moments when I thought, is it worth doing this? I wouldn't have slept in four days. Um, I would have been on the road for two weeks. Um, sleeping in bunk beds in hostels, like waking up at 5 a.m. to catch a train to the next European institution the next day. Um, I had no money because I left my job. Um, you know, we, we were all making these extraordinary sacrifices. And even on people, sorry, even people who had salaries to do this kind of work, working for NGOs or media organizations, we're also making huge sacrifices to go above and beyond. There were many times when I thought, should I just stop? Should I just sort of give up on this? Like, for example, we're, we're calling for the public inquiry. Is it worth it? Should I drop that and focus on this instead, considering the huge personal cost I'm incurring? Or there were other times when, say, the government said, okay, we'll concede to you on this. For example, we'll accept to start the public inquiry. If you agree that XYZ people whom we have nominated will be on the board of inquiry. And of course, at that point, you think, okay, this is my opportunity to sort of say, okay, fine, and just relax. But of course, you're making a concession you're sort of giving up some of the things that you've set out to fight for from the beginning in exchange for some degree of personal comfort, perhaps. 
um, or some period of relaxation, let's say. Um, but in doing so, you're, you're showing this, this weakness. Once you agree to that concession, then you're, you're already on weak footing. The next time you're going to, you've set a precedent. The next time you're fighting for something else, you're going to come back to that concession that you made previously. And that concession is going to be used as a stick to beat you with. So th this is what I mean. It's not to sort of, um, it's not to, uh, to always beat your chest or definitely not. Um, it's just that in those moments where you're thinking of giving up and concede to not concede. Thank you. Um, question from Kate Bartlett, who's based in South Africa, she's in Oxford at the moment, based in South Africa. And you, you touched on this, that you and your brothers, in, in, you've had a horrible tragedy and yet you're also in a position of privilege because you're in the European Union, you, you have the resources. What advice would you give, or, you know, could you expand a little bit on what advice you would give to the um, journalists, often non-white journalists, who don't get that kind of coverage and support and don't have those resources to fight for justice? you know which which of the things that you've outlined very clearly would you say are most relevant to them it's extremely difficult for me to give advice because i i i mean i have never worked for a long period in a situation like that in a situation where or rather in a context where none or few of these institutions exist um, but even where they don't exist, I would still turn to outside institutions, um, creating outside pressure, and also engage with people who form part of the same community or sort of allied communities um, in your particular country. Th this is really important. And of course, not to attack each other. Um, you have to keep your eyes on the ball. Um, don't sort of... Uh, of course, this is really difficult to do, but um, NGOs frequently fight with each other. Uh, you have to work hard not, not to do that um, and to work together. I I really wish I had had better advice, um, but the the honest truth is that my experience is from the European context, yeah. And I sort of honestly cannot say you should do this, this, and that, because I have no idea what it's like to work in a country where none of those institutions exist. Ideally, they would be created. Um, that's a long battle that's going to take generations. What I would say is that th there, there is value in these institutions. Um, so don't let anyone say these institutions are useless. The Council of Europe is useless. The United Nations is useless. Um, the Parliament is useless. No, we, we need these institutions. We need to change them but um, we need to work out how they can be improved and how new ones can be created um, so that when things get really bad, then we'll have someone to turn to.
absolutely right. And the other part of the question you're saying, what, how do you keep the focus on her work? I can answer that. that I, as Matthew said, there's, um, there's Daphne stories that carried on and then turned into forbidden story. The Daphne project turned into forbidden stories with the very strong idea that you may kill the journalists, but you don't kill their work. So journalists in this network pledge to carry on on reporting on the stories that journalists were. I mean, something to say about this, mm. of course, it's impossible. So many journalists are killed every month. We, it's in, it requires so many resources to, to investigate every case. Um, the organizations that participated in the Daphne project, including Thomson Reuters, made an enormous financial commitment to supporting the project. It's not possible to do this every time. And sometimes it feels like we're just scratching the surface. But I recently heard what someone who investigates child pornography um, and, and child, like basically child pornography at Europol. I heard what they had to say about something similar to this. And they said, look, at, at Europol, we receive a deluge of, um, of child sexual abuse material every single day. And the percentage of these cases that the organization can successfully investigate is so low that sometimes you think, what on earth are we doing? It's, it's impossible, we can't keep up. But if you're in that position where you're, you're empowered to do something about one particular case, then you have a duty to do it. So even if it feels like, okay, we're only investigating the case of one murdered journalist, there are over a thousand murdered journalists for the sake of argument, I'm, I'm only scratching the surface. Still, the very fact that we're empowered to, inve to investigate one single case of, out of that 1,000, in my opinion, means that we're, we're duty-bound to do it. And this is how I look at our work um, in the future too. The foundation will, will continue to investigate such cases and only if we can only meaningfully investigate one, we have a duty to do it. Thank you. I thought it was interesting when you talked about security training, you say one of the major assets of security training is it takes away your feeling of powerlessness. You kind of think, I know how to look at a situation rationally and I know how to, to respond. And that's kind of both a physical thing, but also kind of very mental coping mechanism to living in incredibly stressful situations and not feel, feeling overwhelmed by your environment and the tasks ahead. Um, Matthew, thank you so much. I think um, it's been an hour and it's, it's been incredibly moving, incredibly useful. I'd recommend to everyone, you, we had a Twitter thread with lots of resources today and we'll send around an email with more information as well. And do keep, you know, do follow um, Matthew's work, his brother's work, do follow this story do keep up the pressure on institutions and governments where you can on, on all the matters raised today. Um, stay safe, Matthew. Thank you. You too. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.